Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Drive out a prejudice through the door and it will return through the window. Or at least Frederick the Great of Prussia said to his advisor, the French philosopher, Voltaire. Not inappropriate in the case of Voltaire, whose anti-Semitic views seem to escape the relentless self-questioning and scepticism that he brought to everything else. But Frederick the Great was making a wider point. Prejudice in one form or another is deep-rooted in the human psyche. Here telling us more is Alan Snyder from the University of Sydney, speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. Our perceptions, our memory, our decisions are based on filtered information. We view the world in a sense top-down through concepts, through mental templates, which are built up from our past experience. And of course, these concepts are crucially important for our survival. They enable us to make rapid predictions about what is most likely based on only partial information. But the strategy leads us susceptible to certain kinds of perceptual and cognitive errors visual illusions, false memories, prejudice, and it makes us inclined to connect the dots in ways that are familiar rather than to explore novel interpretations. Prejudice is our subject this week, and defined like that, it does not sound too toxic, but we all know where it can lead. Joining me to discuss prejudice is a young dynamic Anglican priest, Reverend Jack Noble of St. Maritobone Church in London, and social psychologist Dr. Kitty Alone research fellow and outreach manager at the Wolf Institute, who has a special interest, thankfully, in morality. Welcome to Naked Reflections. So the contrarian in me wants to ask if the implications of what Alan Snyder says is that we should be more forgiving of certain sorts of prejudice, especially if that prejudice is an intrinsic nature of who we are. Let's start with you, Kitty. What do you think? Well, I think before we can launch into that answer, we need to really understand the roots of prejudice in our brains, in our psychology. Humans 
have evolved to live in groups. And as a result, we sort of pass the world into the groups we belong to and the groups that we don't. And this has a very profound effect on our perception. So for example, race, which is a very salient feature of a social category, is detected by the cognitive system in literally fractions of a second. Not only that, but recent neural studies have shown that there is reduced neural activity in the parts of the brain that deal with face differentiation when we're looking at people of our own race and people of another race. So this gives us the natural tendency to view outgroup members more along their categorical line as being all stereotypes of a particular category rather than individual members. What this does not mean is that we naturally or will, as a result of that, go on to act in a typically prejudiced or detrimental way. So we do have these tendencies to break down the world into us and them. But what this doesn't mean is that we should or would act in a particularly problematic way, leading to sort of downright prejudice and then sort of along to discrimination. So in terms of whether we should forgive prejudice, that question for me as a psychologist is very much tied in with how it develops in the brain and whether that ultimately means that it translates into behaviour. And for me, I would suggest, and also a, a body of research would suggest that these innate or tendencies can be overridden, so they don't necessarily have to translate directly into prejudice behaviour. So on the one hand, you're saying it is part of who we are, but on the other hand, you're saying we can get over it. Yes, pretty much, yeah. So Jack, as a Christian, I think Kit is really saying we have to understand prejudice. But for you, I would imagine forgiveness is very much at the top of the list of dealing with prejudice, or am I wrong? Forgiveness is high up the list, hopefully, for a Christian in all manner of life. And I think one of the important things to understand about a Christian understanding of forgiveness is that it is a call forward. It has a forward momentum. So For example, in the Book of Common Prayer, which is a foundational text for the Church of England and the Anglican tradition, that 17th century liturgy, when we make our confession to God and are absolved, we say that we intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways. So you're right. We bring our prejudice to the table, literally, in the case of the altar, and we walk away intending to be better. Because forgiveness is not just about patting us on the head and saying we're all right as we are. It is actually a forward invitation, a forward momentum into a new way of living in which, as we know, prejudice actually it isn't what we're called to. It isn't the best of ourselves. But it is part of who we are. And of course, there are plenty of Christians and people of all faiths who are prejudicial. So why is that? If religion is preaching tolerance and fighting and tackling prejudice, do we find it so prevalent in religious society as well as in lay? It's prevalent in religious society because, exactly as Kitty described, it's just prevalent in society. There is no separation of the experience of human beings as religious beings than as social beings or, or as psychological beings. So we aren't immune from the foibles of being human. Quite the opposite. We're human beings seeking to understand what it means to be fully alive. But because we're seeking to be fully alive, we should be seeking to understand prejudice exactly as Kitty describes, so that we can not be shackled by it, but find ourselves able to live with it in a positive and creative way. Well, Kitty, tell us a little bit more about prejudice, and in particular, the significant work of Gordon Allport, who wrote The Nature of Prejudice many, many years ago. 
Gordon Allport was an American psychologist, and in 1954, he published The Nature of Prejudice, which has gone on to be one of the most widely cited and widely read tomes in the social psychological literature. And he bucked the trend of the time, bringing groups together who had previously been hostile would be an absolute disaster. But for Allport, this idea of contact was at the heart of intergroup relationships. It was at the heart of ameliorating tensions between previously hostile groups. And this is the book where he really sort of outlined his what's called the contact hypothesis. And despite being written in the early 50s, this is still very much the text or the theory that most work in public policy, governmental research is based on. So if you read any kind of governmental document on prejudice reduction strategies, at some point they will acknowledge or doff their cap to Allport. And for Allport, bringing members of different groups together or contact, as he calls it, was the catalyst for increasing relationships between the groups. So for him, it wasn't just enough that they come together. There had to be a set of prerequisite features that had to be in place for it to actually evolve into a positive experience for both group members. So the first of which was the group members have to have equal status within the contact setting. The second point is that it must be a type of contact that allows people to get to know app group members as individuals. The third prerequisite feature that Allport stipulated was that for contact to be positive, there had to be cooperation in the pursuit of a common goal. And the fourth point was that the contact situation had to have the support of authority figures. And this is very much the template that all interreligious dialogue is based on as well. These four prerequisite features involved in positive contact. Jack, can you relate to that fourfold approach of Allport? Because it's, there, there are a lot of echoes, aren't there, in the, um, in the religious world? Absolutely. There's real echoes there. An example that pops into my mind is a parish I used to work in in South Manchester. We recently migrated Pakistani-Bengali community, Muslim community, and us being the local Church of England parish church. And we could gather Christians and Muslims together to celebrate Mary as a great figure in our faiths and, uh, and celebrate Our Lady and pray together and hear various scriptures. And just by spending time together, you realise for communities that otherwise could be estranged and feeding their own prejudices, that you aren't fire-breathing dragons and neither are they. And even the radical nature of being together as people of faith worshipping together absolutely starts to deconstruct so much misinformation that over years and years has built up and is in danger of continuing to build up, which is a really healthy thing. And certainly here in London, in our local church, England Parish Church, from which I'm speaking to you, on a Sunday morning... It's a hallmark that we are who we claim to be, that all odds and sods are sat together equal before the Lord on a Sunday morning. And as soon as our churches or communities become a monocultural or mono in any way, actually, we can assume that we are failing to be the body of Christ because we are self-replicating. And that therefore prejudice must be at work somewhere in there, be it conscious or unconscious, be it sort of an externally applied thing or internally and out. And I suppose what the clip from The Naked Scientist suggests, and that's really quite difficult for us, which is the intrinsic nature of prejudice, that it is part of the natural order. And although Allport offers ways to respond through social contact theory, it still assumes that prejudice is part of the human condition. So let's just look at that in a bit more detail and start with you, Jack, because There is an argument to say, isn't there, that by claiming to have some particular truth claim, you are exhibiting prejudice to those who don't have that same truth claim. There is a level on which particularity is always exclusive. Absolutely. 
But the trouble is, without particularity, then we have no meaning either. My parents have been happily married for 30 years. It's only because they've committed to each other and only to each other that they have the beautiful gift of a lifelong relationship and family and children. But you're right, in interfaith dialogue, the same particularity, the same love, actually, the same commitment, not to people this time, but people with God and God with people, can so easily be twisted and become a dark thing. So we're always living in that creative place where particularity makes space for love and commitment and truth and beauty. But we need to live it out in such a way that it isn't a closed door, but a constant invitation to life and relationship, even with those who have committed to a different particularity. But there's a difference between particularity and diversity and prejudice. And I suppose I'm trying to tease out specifically the prejudicial side of religious belief. I'm not picking on you in particular, Jack. It's just you're our religious representative. You'll be pleased to know. And I'll turn to Kitty in a moment. But I want to push back a little bit more on that because each faith tradition, and my own as a Jew and yours as a Christian, but it's true of Islam and beyond the Abrahamic faiths in the Indic religions as well, have these truth claims And they are often understood over and against those who are other. And I would define that as prejudice. So what do we do about it? It's a very good point. And I think certainly from my own Christian tradition and back into our Jewish heritage, I'd want to say that it's how you live it out that matters. And in our own context, right the way through the Old Testament, for example, the prophets again and again are calling the people of God back to say, let God be God and stop setting yourself up or others or idols or kings even as gods in their place. Which means, of course, God has the monopoly on judgment. And that includes prejudgment or prejudice, that if we truly are people of faith, then we will let God be the only judge. And even though we have committed to God, as we understand him, that actually precludes us setting ourselves up on judgment thrones. And in the New Testament, of course, we see Jesus treating people outside the fold in a radical way that disturbs those in authority and breaks the rules. And I, as a Christian, am constantly challenged each day to do the same. It doesn't mean that I'm any less committed to Jesus as God made man and as my Lord, but it means that I have to treat people as he did, including the people who were out considered, you know, beyond the pale, even in his own context. So if we really follow God, it will mean that we do things differently. Oh, there's plenty of food for thought there because there are plenty of biblical texts that are very problematic in terms of violence and prejudice. Let's move back to Kitty because you've been doing some research, Kitty, looking at different faith traditions, deliberately setting out to understand the approaches of different religious traditions. And what have you learned as far as prejudice and tackling prejudice is concerned? Well, now this, as you might expect, is an extremely grey area. So there's a vast body of work in social psychology that looks at what's called religious prosociality. And you find several studies, you find studies that suggest that religiosity increases people's prosocial behaviour. You find others that suggest that actually religion causes aggression, prejudice, hostility towards outgroup. And I think what we should avoid doing is thinking of religion as just a monolithic entity, because what's becoming clear in the literature is that different aspects of religiosity have differential effects. So you mentioned some wrathful examples of biblical scripture. So people found that by getting people to read very angry scriptures in the Bible, where God was clearly depicted as wrathful and vengeful, people, rather unsurprisingly, then went on to show much more hostility and aggression towards an outgroup. However, people that read a biblical passage with no indication of a wrathful God went on to show much less aggression and support for outgroup members. So 
it really depends what your aspect of religiosity you're talking about. So one of the ways we can think about this is that there are perhaps two components to religion. The first is a social bonding mechanism. It's like the group aspect of religion. And for many people in anthropology and the cognitive science of religion, they've argued that religion is an adaption because it helps human societies grow and stabilise. So it has this incredible bonding function, which promotes what we might call parochial altruism. So these are behaviours that will protect the group. This means protecting the group may well be at the detriment of an outgroup member. But ultimately, the net result is that the group is protected. So parochial altruism is problematic. But then there's a lot of research to suggest that if we sort of highlight the more spiritual and belief-centred aspects of religion, this actually promotes people to engage in universal altruism. So it sort of is more engaged with people's concerns about morality and fairness rather than eliciting these sort of group-based drives and intuitions. So the research that I've been doing, one of the things we're finding and one of the huge problems that we're coming up against is that within a contact situation, like Allport suggested, it's relatively easy to document some kind of attitudinal belief change in the participants. You might find, for example, if you run a dialogue between Muslim participants and Christians somewhere in the Middle East, you might find that they say their attitudes towards the outgroup has improved. But what we're finding is it doesn't always translate into the broader society. These effects do not transfer. These positive contact effects aren't seeping out into the broader social milieu and actually implementing sort of broader change. So this is problematic. But of course, people in a dialogue situation, for change to happen on a much broader scale, we can't just understand the minds of the people in the dialogue. We need to understand the minds of the people in the societies to which they return as well. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Jack Noble and Kitty Alone. And we're discussing prejudice. On a recent Naked Scientist Q&A, a South African listener phoned in and suggested that prejudice could be genetic. Here's Chris Smith responding. This is learned behaviour, and it's, it's a behaviour that we pass on from one generation to another by the milieu at the time. The environment we grow up in is the one that we adopt behaviourally because humans are a social species. We get on and we're successful as a large group. And the way we do that is we have evolved to have a very receptive brain that says, OK, you, you tell me how to behave and I'll copy you. So we copy our seniors, we copy each other and we do that to fit in. So we all kind of sing the same song. And this means that if a group of people are born into an environment where everyone gets on, then they will get on regardless of where someone comes from, what, what colour they are and so on. On the other hand, if people are born into an environment where one group are set against the other, for no reason other than that's what everyone else around them is doing, these people adopt that behaviour to fit in with their particular group. And that's what we've got to disabuse people of that notion. Genetically, it's a much harder argument to make because the thing is, humans are very intelligent for the most part. There are exceptions. We're all aware of a few of them. But for the most part, humans are very intelligent and intelligence trumps is that the right word to use? <laughs> it's a bad choice. In, in, intelligence surmounts a lot of these things. And so actually, there probably is an element of genetics at play here in the sense that your genes make you receptive to messages, they make you sociable, they make you who you are by giving you a blank canvas to work with. But superimposed on that is your own intelligence, your upbringing, your education. Chris Smith was talking about racial prejudice. But I can't help feel that the arguments within the in-group are that much more bitter. 
I mean, we're very good at arguing with those that we're closest to, with those that we love. And so much of the religious stories have been about arguments between brothers, between siblings, between tribes, because they're both part of this in-group. Jack? Absolutely. And I'm much kinder to my friend's parents than I am to my own. I mean, I suspect that's true of all of us, which is maybe a mark of our belonging. And my parents might not agree when I'm being all cross and short-tempered with them. But actually, there's something beautiful about the level to which you belong. And it's the intimacy that breeds the conflict. So as with all these markers of prejudice, maybe, they don't so much need to be ignored or even eliminated, but redeemed. So it's not about constructing a system in which they are uh, completely powerless, but about taking their power and turning it for good. And and the examples we've given, even in the discussion so far, for example, Kitty, you began, we're talking about skin colour. And I know that, you know, over the course of human history, there's been a very varied picture about that. And until power was located in white northwestern Europe, say before then when it was located in Southern Europe, in the Roman Empire, actually skin colour wasn't such, and difference of skin colour, wasn't such a seabed of prejudice as it later became. So good programming is possible and good change is possible. We don't have to just give in to these things. We can turn them to make it a positive force. Kitty, doesn't this challenge Allport's assumption about contact theory? Because many of these groups that ended up fighting each other, destroying each other, and we can think of examples in Europe in the 1980s with Bosnian genocide, in Rwanda in the 90s. These are people who lived alongside one another, who knew one another, who intermarried. Doesn't that go against the contact theory that Allport proposed? Not particularly. So you have to think about the genesis of Allport's theory So much work in social psychology in the aftermath of the Second World War, particularly in response to the horrors of the Holocaust, were very interested in understanding how prejudice could escalate to genocidal levels. So leading figures like, for example, Henri Tajfel, who himself was a Polish Jew, whose entire family was wiped out in the Holocaust, dedicated the entire rest of his life to trying to understand this in-group, out-group dynamic. So Allport's theory on the nature of prejudice comes from a very particular place. It's looking at how facilitated conversations between minority and majority outgroup members. In a sense, it's a product of its time, but it really kind of laid the model for how conflict resolution has taken place in Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War. So it's not really an overarching theory of all human prejudice. He does specify very set and certain conditions for it to apply, and it does work in specific contexts. We tend to see outsiders as homogenous. And I know that's often directed to those groups that we don't know very well. They're all the same. And the use of the definite article, Jack. So why is there that tendency to see them as homogeneous? It sort of fits in with all the things that Kitty was saying earlier on about the kind of need to create a common identity. And I know certainly in the course of European history, that's been time and time again, especially in the history of anti-Semitism. And of course, it's a history full of misinformation as well those medieval cartoons of what Jewish people looked like and what they did at night. There's also the tendency, I think, to try and disempower that homogenising and ultimately violent instinct by reducing us to individuals, as if the solution is to say there is never a they, there is only an I. And I'd want to reject that as well, because I don't think it's actually freeing. I think it's just a different kind of enslavement. And we've been programmed for decades now, generations, to imagine that the I is the only safe place to be because that allows us to be in control and independent. And ultimately, it's it's an individualistic, consumeristic instinct. 
And it, it's all for the benefit of our capitalist masters rather than actually for our human flourishing. So somewhere in between that violence of aggressive they and this sad emulsification and dehumanization of the lonely I, somewhere in between there is, is a magic we, if we're going to call it that, or I don't know what you want to call it. And that's, that's the sweet spot that we've got to aim for. And does the magic we mean that we're not them? At its best, it could be. And I think it also relies on different kinds of belonging. And I don't know whether this comes into contact theory or not. But So I don't belong to you because I am a Hindu and you are a Muslim. But I do belong to you because we're both live in the same village or we're both bicycle repairmen or we're both keen golfers. We've got to find different strands of belonging that break these things down, which I suppose, again, is come back to my point earlier on of it's not about eliminating these things it's about making them creative about finding loads of ways of belonging rather than just a few ways of them and us yeah i think jack is right i mean nobody belongs to just one group over the course of your life you have multiple group identities you belong to various different sectors of society so it's quite easy for people to reassess or redefine the boundaries of their group. So like Jack was saying, for example, if the shift goes from Hindu Muslim to the more inclusive sort of members of one society, then you share that group membership. And within that, you know, you harvest a lot of good positive contact effects. And of course, these questions are especially hot at the moment when we're talking about gender, when for some people, the idea of a binary gender is exclusive and difficult, and even just a socially constructed fantasy and an oppressive one of that. And for others, there's something beautiful about femininity in its various forms and beautiful about masculinity, and they should be celebrated rather than destroyed. And for that matter, I'm sure there is beautiful emerging characteristics of those who identify in various ways that aren't either exclusively masculine or feminine. It sounds like, Kitty, that to tackle prejudice, you propose the contact theory and all ports work. We're moving towards beginning with commonality alongside or even before meeting one another. In other words, the example you gave of the Hindu and the Muslim in India, we're actually all cyclists. You know, we have the commonality. And once we recognize that commonality, we can move on to the fact that I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian or a Hindu cyclist. Is there something in that in terms of commonality? Yes, absolutely. So you often find, particularly within sort of intercultural or interreligious dialogue initiative, that it's always the common identity is accentuated. So your example of cyclists was a great one, Ed, because it's always things like you'll find interfaith cycling or interfaith gardening or um, sort of accentuating this common shared interest, which people can bond across. So you see somebody as interested in the same things as you, rather than just somebody who is completely alien and completely undecipherable. But presumably from that, we have to move on to managing the difference and it'd be foolish just to focus on the commonality and think it all stops there. Yes, absolutely. And that's why interreligious dialogue is so difficult. And that is why it does not always work. And when it does work, it may be temporary. So what we do see is people who have very positive attitudes to the other Christian members in their group, but they see these people as sort of exceptions to the stereotype rather than changing or updating their entire belief systems around the group Christians, for example. So there is a lot of work to be done. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. If it was easy, we would have stumbled across the solution millennia ago but it's hard it's very very hard but I do think that this pursuit of a common goal really is a promising way to try and address persistent difference between two faith communities for example. And Jack you were nodding along there is that is that something you'd agree with? Absolutely and I wondered I mean you'll know more than I 
on the ground as a kind of practitioner, if you like, in community, I get the sense that a few years ago, the, the, the move was to pretend that there is no difference and to really maximise the stuff that religious groups and others have in common and sort of just not talk about the awkward family truths, if you like, of, of different belief systems. And now it feels like a much more bold and creative thing is happening in terms of interfaith dialogue, as I say, on the ground. We enjoy talking about the things we hold differently within a culture of respect and even admiration, despite the difference and the sincerity with which those different beliefs are held. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. And I'll be bold and end with a gag from Sydney Smith. I never read a book before reviewing it. It would prejudice my judgment. Thanks to my guests this week, Jack Noble and Kitty Alone, and thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.